St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents In Heaven and on Earth, recordings of the classes, talks, and retreats given by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of your blessed commandments. Trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well-pleasing unto you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and unto you do we ascribe glory together with your Father, who is from everlasting in your all-holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. So this evening we start our ninth class. Uh, we're going, uh, so there's a few new folks and it always helps for us to kind of get an idea where we're at. Uh, we are uh, going through the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Uh, there's a little bit, uh, this is the main Eucharistic liturgy that the Orthodox Church serves. Uh, there is a few exceptions uh, of feast days uh, and uh, Lenten Sundays where we serve the liturgy of St. Basil, uh, which in many ways is basically taking certain prayers of Chrysostom out and replacing them with Basil's. Uh, so we'll be hitting beginning the anaphora of St. John Chrysostom tonight, uh, but we will not uh, be going over St. Basil's because St. Basil's anaphora would be a class in and of itself, maybe two, because it's extremely long. Uh, has anyone ever sat down and just read Basil's anaphora or studied Basil's anaphora? Maybe that's something we could do during Lent, actually. For those of you, for those of you who don't maybe know, we are recording all of these, so if you miss a few, uh, we have them... Uh, they get uploaded as we can up onto the website, but there's quite a few uh, already uploaded from this class and a few other classes. Um, and we've been going through the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, and we have now, um, say that we've had the, the Great Entrance, which is where the priest, and if he's serving with the deacon, uh, have taken the gifts from the prothesis table, the preparation table inside the altar. They have, um, Processed through the people, uh, did commemorations in doing that, uh, and then have now entered back into the altar, and the door is shut, the curtain shuts, at least in the Russian tradition, there's different uh, ways of doing, uh, serving the liturgy, but this is the tradition we do here at St. Anne's. And then we are on to the next litany, which this little book, what we're using this PDF, I'm not really sure where this some of the titles for some of these litanies came from. Uh, but this is the next litany that uh, we move on to. This says, the litany of supplication of the offering of the bread and wine. I've never seen that called that before. Uh, I'm used to either the spiritual litany or the uh, litany of fervent supplication. Yeah. Let's see, what my book says is the litany of supplication. Um, why would you why, why would you guess as we if you just kind of take a look at these litanies real quick why would it be called the fervent supplication or the spiritual litany any guesses 
Well, not because it's spiritual, but not religious. No, it's Jesus. not because it's spiritual, but not religious. No. This would, this would predate that by a bit. <laughs> uh, what happens actually in this litany, it's actually fascinating. Um, so, well, first, let us complete our prayer unto the Lord. Has anyone ever heard that for the first time and thought, we're going to end? <laughs> and then we don't. Uh, complete actually does not mean to end in the Greek for this word. It actually means uh, to uh, add on or to continue. So what we really probably should say is let us continue our prayer unto the Lord or let us add our, prayer, uh, our prayers unto the Lord instead of let us complete. Uh, you can kind of get the idea of let us complete with that, but I think our minds immediately go, oh, they're going to end soon. Um, for the precious gifts now offered, let us pray to the Lord. Of course, uh, the gifts that is referring to in that litany is the fact that the, the gifts are now offered on the altar. The next litany for this holy house and for those who enter it with fear, reverence, and the fear of God, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Help us, save us, have mercy on us, and keep us, O God, by thy grace. Does this start to sound familiar a little bit? Does this sound familiar at all? Help us, save us, have mercy on us, and keep us, O God, by thy grace. We do every little litany, like I did it at least two or three times tonight. Uh, this is one of those kind of uh, holding litanies to then move into what this is the section as to why this litany gets its name. And you can see the shift, right, from Lord have mercy as the response of the people to grant this, O Lord, that the whole day may be perfect, holy, peaceful, and sinless, let us ask the Lord. What is what's starting to happen with these next few litanies? Anything? They're just kind of blase things, or are we? Uh, well, are we preparing um, ourselves for um, to receive? We are preparing. Yes. There's also. I'm, I'm just. I'm just grasping here. Yes. Please grasp. I don't want to just sit up here and drone. I don't feel like I have a very droney voice, but I could if I. Bueller. Bueller. They're switching to first person. They're becoming more personal. They're also. Look, look, look at the theme here an angel of peace, a faithful guide, a guardian of our souls and bodies. Pardon and remission of our sins and transgressions, all things that are good and profitable for our souls and peace for the world, that we may complete the remaining time of our life in peace and repentance. And it even gets even turns even more serious with this litany, and then a Christian ending to our life, painless, blameless, peaceful, and a good defense before the dread judgment seat of Christ. Let us ask of the Lord. There's a shift of kind of eschatological content or kind of judgment uh, content, uh, a desire for. Uh, forgiveness for somebody to guide us, an angelic guardian. Uh, it is the belief of the Orthodox Church that at our baptism we are assigned a guardian angel. Um, we have uh, asking for the remission of our sins, anything that is good and profitable for our souls, uh, anything uh, that we need uh, time, asking God for more time uh, to complete life in peace and repentance and then of course that we have a good defense before the judgment seat of Christ 
What's fascinating actually about these litanies is that they basically replace uh, from the great litany. Uh, they have similar themes going on actually. So if we go uh, to the litany of peace, where we uh, pray for the clergy and the people, um, we have then a whole day that be perfect, holy, peaceful, and sinless. Then the next uh, litany in the series will be for the civil authorities and the armed forces, right? And the great litany. Then what we have here, instead of uh, civil authorities and armed forces, we get another armed uh, attendant, a guide, a guardian, right? So now we're praying for ourselves for our guardian angel instead of for the civil authorities and the armed forces. Um, then after that petition, we typically uh, we pray for the cities and the town. And then what we get there for the cities and towns is that we live a life uh, in, see, all things are good and proper for our souls and peace for the world, uh, that we may completely remain time of our life in peace and repentance. We have this churn uh, for the world and for peace and stability. Um, let's see here. We get good weather, crops. We have all of these basic kind of, I don't want to say like physical things, but in the litany, the great litany, remember, we're kind of talking about the cosmic aspects of things. And then all of these litanies have some of the similar themes, but they're all now turned towards uh, our needs uh, and our particular um, standing before God. Well, if one is eternal, one is the present world, this one would get the name spiritual. Right. Because this one then turns inside. Right. What do you all think of some of these litanies? Are there any things that struck you in doing? I'm always struck by the last litany there. Mm -hmm. A Christian ending to our life, painless, blameless, and peaceful. What, what do you think that means? That would not be on the top of my, if I was making prayers up or when I do personal prayers, I'm not usually asking to have the end of my life being painless, blameless, peaceful. Maybe that's because I'm too young still. Uh, but what, do you, what is that, what image do you think of? Or what do you think of why we, you would pray for your, uh, the end of your life? Or maybe even, what is a Christian ending to your life? I don't, I don't know. When I was a little girl, I, mean, I don't know if you, I don't, I'm just going to spit this out. But yeah. I mean, I would say, oh, now I, I, mean, I was raised Catholic, but it was now I lay me down to sleep. I prayed the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake. And so, I don't, I mean. Uh -huh. I, I, I think I, you're I, actually on a very good track here. Well, we're also dealing with a church that, quite frankly, has been through periods of time where you are much more likely to die early uh -huh. in pain without the medical care we have today. Mm -hmm. Blameless, uh, I'll skip mm -hmm. for a second, peaceful, Christians have not exactly lived through a lot of peace. Mm -hmm. um, for large parts of our history. Mm -hmm. The thing that's not here, which I don't know if they would have even thought of it, the number one, I, I've just seen polls of Catholics, but I know my father was a hospital chaplain, and I, and I know a lot of the things that he read as well. The number one fear of adult Catholics is dying alone in a hospital room. Why? 
Why alone? I mean, just no what, family. What is one? Uh, what do you want to receive before you die? Communion. communion. What do you want to receive maybe even before communion? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. So confession, right? You want to offer your last confession. You want to offer uh, that last confession, uh, and you want to uh, be able to receive Holy Communion before the last rites, right? Um, then you also want uh, the ability, I think, here um, is the perfect, what is the perfect uh, death in the Old Testament? The perfect death is basically the patriarchs in their bed, surrounded by their family, with their, their feet up, They've lived a good life, a full life, and they now see all of the ble- you know the blessings that God has showered upon them. So I think you can see here a portrait of giving a good Christian ending to our life, uh, painless, blameless, peaceful, that it's something that we actually, it's not like immediate, you get struck down dead and you don't have that time to be able to actually transition to be able to offer your confession, to be able to receive communion, to be able to say goodbyes, to be able to actually uh, ask for forgiveness for those that you need to ask forgiveness from. Uh, I think the the prayer is one of those prayers of um, to give that Christian ending to our life is to give that space. And then I think outside of that, then it shifts, of course, to the spiritual dimension, right? Give a good defense before the judgment seat of Christ. The opposite is pretty perfectly described in Shakespeare a number of times by by ghosts talking about being taken unconfessed with no warning. We don't think like, I, I think it's not, I think a lot of us in the modern West do not think like that. We, we probably, the thing here that we probably most relate to is painless and peaceful, <laughs> right? We want to go down in a morphine blaze or something, right? Like, we just want to, like, just die in peace uh, without having to feel anything. Uh, I don't think that that is the primary focus of this petition, uh, of painless meaning, you know, they hadn't discovered morphine. <laughs> yes? Yeah, would, would um, the petition here also be related to, um, so I know, like, like if you read, um, I don't know, I was reading a biography about St. John of Kronstadt where he prophesied that Leo Tolstoy's death would not be a very good death. Mm-hmm. And in the final day, hours or days of Leo Tolstoy's life, he saw, you know, apparitions and he just had a, it, it was a very miserable death for him. Do you remember where he died? I don't. He died in a train station. Yeah. On and, the go. He didn't actually, like, mm-hmm. he did not die in his bed, surrounded by his family. He was actually, I think, estranged from his wife at the time, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and then I also remember Lenin's death was also really bad. So the point being that they, they, they had like a lot of spiritual agony. Yeah, and I think moments. blameless might then also fit in there too. If like you you die and are peaceful too, it might it might not just be towards God, but like you die without having the blame like the community uh, blaming you for you know millions of deaths or etc. You can be able to. I love what some of these litanies that there's a universality to these litanies that wherever, even as, you know, somebody who's not, I don't think about death on a regular basis or I'm not, you know, don't have any particular maladies or anything. 
But then every time I come to this litany, I'm always reminded of my end, that I am going to stand before the judgment seat, that I, like, that I do, and I've, I've grown to really love the petition a lot earlier of um, an angel of peace and faithful guide to guarding our souls and bodies. It's something that was never discussed when I was growing up, the idea of a guardian angel, uh, but it's something now that I very much value uh, of the idea again of that we are not alone in this world and that we are actually surrounded by the uh, I mean we're surrounded by the powers and forces of evil I mean I got that growing up <laughs> but how many of the powers and forces of like light and goodness that are around you that you can turn to uh, that will stand by you uh, that will help you that will protect you um, all the things that we pray for I read something that I just pulled up the word angel uh -huh. on the, just in my search engine and it, it pulled up about that, about us having a, our own angel given at birth. And even though I knew I had a guardian angel, uh -huh. what I guess what I wanted to ask is, I mean, do we know their name? I mean, or is it, is it No, just so, the, so this is one of those things that um, the church is, if you look at the prayers of the church, it's pretty circumspect. You can find like an akathist to your guardian angel and like most evening prayers will have like a prayer, but it's almost basically what that litany is, which is kind of uh, protect me, guard me. And I think what you can get into pretty quickly is uh, if you were to say, can I figure out the name for my guardian angel and put it into that search engine? You'll probably be in some magic websites. Okay. <laughs> uh, because I think what, what there's there is a, a desire to know names and to, uh, what it's usually close to knowing names is also a desire to control. Not saying that you, well, you know, right, want to know the name well, of your angel so you can no, control one, them. This but. one, it even talked about Raphael. And, and yeah, but we do know we do and know mention, names. Mentioned light, yes. mentioned light. It about you know it had to do with like it had to do with angel signs, and it talked about angel signs. And I thought, well, well, well I don't know if that's real or not. But, yeah, you know, don't believe in everything you read on the internet. That's right, what Abraham right. Lincoln said. But it did mention, <laughs> it did mention Raphael and light. Yes. You know, when I see about the peaceful end again, you think of persecutions, and when you talk about martyrs there. Yeah. I was telling students today. That um, you know, down here's the Bible Belt, okay? And I, you know, explain the Southeast, probably as far as West Texas. I grew up in the empty Bible Belt. I was almost kidnapped by deprogrammers. That's typical where I grew up, Boston area. I mean, you become a Christian, uh, you can find that book, Kidnapped from My Faith, by the guy that was kid the Jews for Jesus. The guy was going to Jews for Jesus meeting. He was Jewish, became a Christian, and his father had him kidnapped after his wedding rehearsal on a Thursday night. Took him to New York, New Jersey, crossed state lines, became an FBI case. He escaped his kidnappers, went to the police who didn't believe him. And then he had to fly out to Reno, Nevada and get married on the spot because if you're not yet 30 and married, your parents can declare you insane. Now, I don't know if the law still holds. I remember a guy visiting our Bible school. He had been an anesthesiologist, but he was Jewish. He became a Christian. His parents declared him insane. He couldn't practice anymore. And this is the United States. Okay, never mind what goes over, you know, Richard Rembrandt, Romania, the Iron Curtain, all that stuff, and it's what's going on now, like in the Arab world. I mean, I'll say the, the, church has, life. the church has always faced persecutions, struggles, 
Uh, and with, for the Orthodox Church, the, its memory is very, a lot of this stuff is very fresh. I was just in Russia a few months ago now, and the memory of the martyrdoms and the deaths there is very much still fresh. Uh, there are icons and memorials all over the place for all those that were killed and disappeared by the Soviets and the Bolsheviks. Um, Terry, you were going to... Well, I was just going to mention, once again, here in the context of America, where we are, the land of radical individualism. Dear, when I was teaching at Denver Seminary, believe it or not, I actually taught a semester-length class called The Good Death. And we were looking at the images of death that were in popular culture and in the world surrounding us. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at a number of different Protestant and, and other traditions for what constituted the good death. And what I thought was so moving was that these future pastors couldn't conceive of a religious community that stayed in one place long enough to be able to do any of these things, let alone families with 50% divorce rates in all of their all of their congregation. They couldn't picture what we were looking at the uh, spent several two or three weeks on the Bruderhof and the Amish traditions, and that the whole idea that you die in your bed with the windows open and the children of the community are singing hymns to you, <laughs> hymns outside your window. You know, the, these Baptists and others found that just like, you know, how in the world would you even do that? Everybody would be a soccer practice. You know, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, you know, it was like, and what they were trying to figure out was how do we re-envision any of this into the suburban parking lot world we live in? I think you're hitting on, I think one of the great, uh, sometimes unstated challenge to modern Christianity that is not talked about very much. Usually I think what happens is we talk about kind of sensationalist things about, you know, and I'm not downplaying issues of like religious freedom or anything like that, but I think some of the most insidious issues that the church has to face are, are just our material way of life. What we physically do with our time and our space our money, our families, where we live, all of that. And some of that, of course, like we, some of it you don't get to choose. <laughs> you have a house, you're going to be in that house because that's, you know, where you're at. Uh, but the challenge, I mean, just think about, you know, we're trying to increase doing um, some more kind of social things uh, or classes here at St. Anne's. And part of the reason of even doing the podcast is because how uh, there are plenty of people who would like to be here, but they can't because they work. And even to get here, that this is the only Orthodox church for them to be able to get to within 45 minutes. So they're only going to be able to make it on a Sunday morning. They can't get to a Saturday evening. They could, you know, uh, if it would, if they, it would, it just creates a whole host of challenges. Then for us too, as a community, how do we navigate that? Because the Orthodox liturgical calendar and cycle. Uh, does not presume a 21st century <laughs> parking lot uh, suburban lifestyle. What, what, what do you think the Orthodox liturgical tradition presumes? A village. A village, or if not a village, then... Extended family, at least. Extended family. If not a village, then a major city that's basically a Christian city, right? <laughs> like, you think of Constantinople, and you have, like, the Theotokos is the, 
the patroness and protector of the entire city. Um, and you have even hymns even woven into our liturgical calendar and cycle uh, reflect, like, how do I say this? Marian civic pride of Constantinople, actually. So you get this fascinating of, like, aspects of local traditions that then we repeat here, but they were local to Jerusalem or Constantinople or uh, these different places. Um, but then all, you see all these different ways of doing the feasts and the festival cycle, uh, ways in which they adapted in Russia so that certain feasts become really big versus in Greece. For example, you're not going to find in Greece them cutting uh, huge Orthodox crosses into ice and jumping into the water, right? They don't have ice to do that, so they do the jumping for the cross, right? So you have all these little different things. But I think all of this to a challenge for us as how we are going to think and navigate uh, in our own families, and our own lives, how to create the faith as something uh, absolutely essential to the very fabric of who we are, who our families are, to strengthen St. Anne's. Because otherwise it's just kind of thoughts and things outside of us, uh, and it's not a part of the kind of literal, I want to say like literal, I don't like saying literal, the physical uh, makeup of our lives, that it's all bound up together. And also it, it contributes to our lack of ability to have community and things like that. Because if somebody lives 45 <laughs> minutes away, how often are you going to see them? Sunday morning. Uh, we're, then we're also physically limited by this room. <laughs> we're supposed to have coffee hour in this room. and <laughs> You can hardly move around in this space. Uh, so, you know, we have challenges here that we're going to have to start. Well, we are already addressing, but there are going to become more and more challenging uh, as we grow and as we look forward to the future of how we're going to integrate our lives into the life of the church and let the church, I don't want to say dictate, but let the church actually become uh, a real part of who we are and not just kind of a thing that we do. Like taking people, you know, our kids to soccer practice or karate or whatever. So I could, we could do a whole series of discussions about this, which I would like to do, but after this series on the liturgy. <laughs> um, this is the prayer uh, that we have up that is the silent prayer that the priest does during this litany. O Lord God Almighty, who alone art holy, who acceptest the sacrifice of praise from those who call upon you with their whole heart. Accept also the prayer of us sinners and bear it to thy holy altar, enabling us to offer unto thee gifts and spiritual sacrifices for our sins and for the errors of all thy people. Make us worthy to find grace in thy sight that our sacrifice may be acceptable unto you and that the good, the good spirit of your grace may dwell upon us and upon these gifts here offered <coughs> and upon all thy people. And then you have the ekphonesis, the through the compassions of the only begotten Son. What's fascinating, actually, about this silent prayer, besides the fact that it's the sacrificial language is incredibly strong in this prayer, uh, this remember how we've talked about in the history of the liturgy that the first few antiphons and, and even the liturgy of the word historically uh, nobody would have actually been in the altar. There would have been everybody would have been standing outside with the people. Uh, and this is the prayer, actually, that they would have prayed as they went to stand before the altar to begin uh, the anaphora or the thanksgiving prayers for 
the consecration of the gifts to become the body and blood. Any thoughts about this particular prayer or questions? Why is it prayed silently? There's a lot of prayers uh, done silently. Uh, historically, not a lot of these were not done silently. Uh, some of them were. For example, when we were with the... Uh, the I, I, it's debatable what, which ones were silent and which ones are not. Uh, basically, the received practice, I think some of it has to do with as the church, if I, this is me also trying to remember back years to reading different places because this is one of these debates in the church actually. Um, I'm glad that this is one of our debates, whether or not you do a prayer out loud or silently instead of some of the other debates that are uh, I remember when I was at uh, Vanderbilt Divinity, I'm going to pick on a denomination right now sorry, <laughs> when I was at Vanderbilt Divinity, uh, across from Vanderbilt is the headquarters <coughs> for the United Methodist Church and they were having, while I was there at Vanderbilt, they were having a, uh, a gathering of people to debate whether or not you could confect the Eucharist online. So let me make sure that I explain this. <laughs> they wanted to have basically like chat rooms where everybody is in their own separate place, right? Everybody's before their computer and everybody has their own line and their own like host. And then you have one person, I think a duly ordained uh, Methodist elder or whoever they, because I'm so confused by how they do their policy, um, to, you know, bless the gifts. And so they're trying, like, you'd have one person doing it at their place, but then you have somebody in Houston, uh, Chicago, and, I don't know, Louisville, uh, all having their own, and then they could have communion together online, although one person blessed it from wherever they were. They were going to have a debate about this. Dialogue. They're not going to have a debate about it. <laughs> and I and I just remember hearing about this from Methodist students, and I just I'm just I, I I don't even know how to think like that. How that could be possible that in or, the Orthodox Church they would just say, "What are you talking about? Uh, you you know that's just impossible." Um, it well, completely do I. Oh, no, like, your beliefs about what the Eucharist actually is also affects that. Because, like, if, if they think it's basically a symbol at the end of the day, then why not? But, but, it, but that's part of the thing is that they, it's, it's also, and we're, this actually fits into where I actually want to talk about, because we're about to move into the creed, too, about what, uh, whether or not what you actually believe matters or not <laughs> when you are... <laughs> That hit a button. <laughs> About whether or not you believe, what you believe matters when you come to the table or not. Uh, what, uh, so basically, in the Orthodox Church, we can move to this. Uh, there's a lot of positions where it's basically everyone's going to agree to disagree, right? Like, we're all going to have very different opinions about it. And maybe even the book that's supposed to govern things is supposed to be, you know... Uh, this is what we believe, and then everybody kind of goes wink, wink, nudge, nudge, or uh, let's, you know. Sorry, I've been I've been in the Episcopal Church for quite a while, so. It, <laughs> yes, it, the, the, I feel like the Episcopal Church has been one of the my experiences too of where the fingers crossed while saying the creed is almost. Oh, it's de, de rigueur. Yes, like it's normative now. Yeah, it's normative. Yeah. So the. The Orthodox Church, uh, 
Well, as we're moving to the this piece and then the proclamation, let us love one another that with one mind we may confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, one in essence and undivided. Um, this uh, whole movement, uh, and you may not realize this actually, but what, what is happening at this point uh, physically? We're going to tie this back into what we were just talking about, the disconnect between what is actually happening in the church and like the belief uh, or conviction of what is happening. What happens at this point? Let us love one another that with one mind we may confess. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What is physically happening in the altar? It is the exchange of peace. It's the kiss of peace. Uh, you may have experienced in other services. I don't know. Does the Roman Mass still, they do a yeah, kiss of peace? Yeah, peace. Uh, where you kind of shake hands with people around you, right? Okay. So, I don't have yeah, enough they, time. In Lutheran Church, they do that too. Right. Uh, this, part of this, I think, is uh, part of the broader Eucharistic revival, the liturgical revival in the 20th century. Um, historically... The kiss of peace was not just a clergy, and it wasn't a handshake. It was a kiss of peace. Uh, you the, and you even see it where at least Hippolytus, what second, third century Rome, is saying very specifically: okay, men kiss men and women kiss women because this isn't really working. <laughs> uh, and by kiss, not the Greek or Russian, you know, side. You know, it was on the lips. Uh, you would have been, you know, the kiss of peace was you were kissing other people. This was a an integral part, actually, of the early Christian experience. And you can actually see it uh, testified, uh, what do I have there? At least, these are just the names that I, without, like, delving in deep, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Chrysostom, you get it in all, like, a lot of the early liturgies. There is a kiss of peace. Um, let's see here. Athenagoras was another one. Athenagoras, yes. Um, there's a great line. That I, I want to read a little bit from Schmemann just about, because he's actually hitting on a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, for him, the kiss of peace um, was not, uh, let's see here. The kiss of peace disclosed to us its full significance, which is basically the right of the assembling of the entire church. I have said above that it constituted an inalienable part of the church assembly from the first day of the church's existence. Would you imagine the kiss of peace being an inalienable, like, integral part of the Christian worship from the very beginning of the church? If I was to ask a question, what are the integral parts of Christian worship, you probably would not have said kissing, right? <laughs> This was because for the very early Christians, it was not simply a symbol and reminder of love, but a sacred rite of love, the visible sign and rite in which and through which the effusion of divine love into the hearts of the faithful, the vesting of each and all together in the love of Christ is invisibly but really accomplished. In our, in our current utterly individualistic and egocentric approach to the church, this rite is inevitably perceived as a hollow form. Uh, he, Schmemann is very much, uh, it comes through his entire kind of commentary on the divine liturgy of how much church, we can turn church into our kind of individualistic, uh, personal relationship with Jesus, even though we're in a liturgical context, uh, and we lose the, the aspect of the entire body of Christ and how we are connected to each other. 
Uh, and so for him, that the, the, the kiss of peace basically went from the lay, everyone exchanging the kiss to basically a kind of symbolic exchange of the clergy, right? Because you don't see clergy kissing lip to lips. Uh, you see us do this movement, but that was a way of uh, losing an integral part of what we see in this movement up into the anaphora or to the offering of a unity of the church. The kiss of peace, this uh, exchange of peace here, because even you even see the, the loss of the intimacy there, right? The exchanging of the peace versus the kiss of peace. Um, what is that peace all rooted in? Oh, you lost your answer. What is the proclamation that is happening while the kiss of peace is, a, peace is occurring? Well, the purpose is to prepare you for the confession of faith, right? Yes. So what, what is said? Oh, uh, that we may confess the Trinity one essence and undivided. Why would we love one another so that we can confess that? Because that's a, the one mind. That's the one mind. That's the one faith. That's the love that is supposed to be flowing through the entire body of Christ. The bonds of love within the body of Christ is fundamentally rooted uh, not kind of within ourselves, right? <laughs> it is the Father, Son, and the, uh, the Holy Spirit that allow us to be able to exchange the peace, to be bound together, to be a part of that kingdom together. Um, this uh, emphasis on the unity of the faith and the love that's necessary uh, is not an empty unity, right? The church is really specific what the unity of the church is based off. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity in essence and undivided. And this um, unity for the church is something absolutely necessary to um, the importance of dogmas within the church. That the church does teach uh, truths that if you're going to be a part of the truth, uh, a part of the church, you need to, to accept these truths. Otherwise, you're not uh, coming to the table. So this then actually kind of underlines here. What, why, uh, if there's a deacon serving, the deacon would be saying this. The doors, the doors. There's somebody, oh, who is it? Jim Morrison? Uh, yes, it's Jim Morrison. <laughs> Watch out for Jim Morrison. <laughs> I don't know for the young people, that's the lead singer of The Doors. <laughs> what, why the door? Why, what, what are they talking about? Why are they talking about doors? Well, sometimes they had to conduct liturgies, mostly in secret, right? Like in the early centuries of the church, like if they didn't want to get found out. So, so, so uh, basically... The, all of those who uh, are not of the faithful would have already been asked to leave the, the nave or the church, the gathering, the assembly, because only those who had been fully initiated into the body of Christ were allowed at the liturgy beyond this point. So the doors, the doors is basically, you can see this in the Apostolic Constitutions, which is like second, third century uh, material. Uh, and you can see it, what's the name of that one church? Where they have, I think it's, what's the, at Yale they have like a, it's almost like a house church where they could tell that they, they transformed it into a, a, a church 
and it has even motifs that look like uh, local synagogue oh, motifs. I'm trying to remember. It's in Duryopus, Europus, Duryopus, something like that. Yeah. So, and you can tell basically they transformed a Roman house into a church, and they and talking about basically you would have had deacons or maybe subdeacons. I don't know if subdeacons existed yet in the history of the church, but uh, part of what the deacons did was actually uh, they're almost like um, bouncers. <laughs> they would have guarded the doors because what was happening was sacred, and so. Uh, interlopers or folks who are just kind of coming in and going to kind of be like, what are they doing? Huh? Oh, interest. You know, <laughs> that that wasn't allowed. So we still have in the liturgy uh, the exclamation to bar the doors and watch the doors. Uh, and then we say, in wisdom, let us attend. And then we together. And I, I find it fascinating that the we sing I, <clears throat> that as a community, we all corporately sing, I believe. And this is important because the, well, let me read this quote from uh, Justin Martyr, actually. The Orthodox Church does not see a split between the dogmas and the ethos or the ethics of the church. Uh, in fact, I, I would put before you basically what your dogmas are, what you believe, are going to affect what you do and how you act. Um, if they don't, then you maybe have a, a hangover of an older <laughs> belief system that you haven't fully jettisoned or you uh, are still operating under. Uh, but what you have very um, clearly in the early church is what you believe is all tied up in what you do. So for the church to confess this uh, is something essential in order to come to the table. Because there's nothing in the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed uh, that we say in church uh, that could really be quibbled about as a Christian. Right? We're not having some detailed discussion about, you know, What's the difference between... Are you guys having Episcopalian eyes at each other? <laughs> <laughs> you fought those battles. Hey, anybody who's been to a confirmation class where it was switched to we believe, because that meant that this is what our community is saying is true. We might not all agree on this, but the community states this. That was explicitly taught in the confirmation class that I went through becoming an Episcopalian. What wow. was the thing uh, we, we what was it they would say we pray it whether we believe it or not you pray it whether you believe we it or not that the community believes this yeah. but it is not necessary that the individuals believe all of it because we, we, we had a fair amount of uh, I was, I was taught that the heart of the Elizabethan settlement was compromise, <laughs> compromise, compromise. Thank you. We're, gonna, we're, we're all going to use the same prayer book. Okay? And it's okay if you disagree with the, if we disagree with each other about what that exactly means, but we're all going to use the same prayer book. So it's built into the Say DNA. it, Queen Elizabeth, and, and it's... We are united. You get your head cut off. 
I, I don't think Queen Elizabeth imagined Robert Funk and John Shelby Spawn and John Dominic Cross. Oh, <laughs> uh, he's Dominican. <laughs> well, well, you know, well, I got what you're saying. He's Dominican. Yeah. Uh, she would have kicked Spawn out. <laughs> no doubt so, about it. I mean, there's a limit. <laughs> Sorry. But I think. Sidetrack. For, no, it's. I thought it was funny. Uh, I was never Episcopalian, so. Um, but that's a fact. I'll, I'll, I'll read uh, Justin Martyr. So this is from the second century. After we have cleansed the person who believes and has joined our ranks, aka baptized them, we lead him in to where those we call brothers are assembled to offer prayers in common for ourselves, for him who has just been enlightened and for all men everywhere. It is our desire, now that we have come to know the truth, to be found worthy of doing good deeds and obeying the commandments, and thus to obtain eternal salvation. This food we partake we call Eucharist, and no one may share it unless he believes that our teaching is true and has been cleansed in the bath of forgiveness for sin and rebirth, and lives as Christ taught. So, part of the uh, confession of faith, and something that I love about uh, the Russian tradition on this front, because the Greek tradition doesn't always uh, sing the creed, is that we actually sing, uh, it becomes a kind of doxology, our actual like statement of faith. Um, and I'm glad we use the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed because there's other er, <laughs> creeds that wouldn't really go that well. Uh, I'm thinking of like the Athanasian Creed, which would just be like light from light, God from God. It just like long, long, long things that would not go very well. Um, is there any questions? The, the, the Nicene Creed is the standard confession of faith for the Orthodox Church. Do you, do you know when it was actually entered into uh, the Eucharistic liturgy? Because it wasn't originally in the Eucharistic liturgy. Sometime in the 400s, maybe? Sometime in the 400s, that's a good guess. Later, actually. Well, I'd say 1200. Uh, earlier than that. The council, uh, the second ecumenical Four, council eight. itself wasn't universally adopted until Chalcedon, right? Okay. But I don't know when it was added to the liturgy. I would guess, like, 700s or 800s? 500s. So the 6th century. The So where did the nascent creed come from? There were nascent creeds that were practiced throughout the early church. Uh, it's kind of argued that the core of the Nicene Creed is a Syrian uh, baptismal creed, actually. Because the creeds, historically, were not attached to the Eucharistic liturgy. They're actually attached to the baptismal right, because what do you need to do for the baptism? You need to confess the faith. So uh, what has happened is now the Nicene Constantinopolitan, I keep saying Constantinopolitan because there's two versions, the Nicene Creed and the Nicene Constantinopolitan is the full that we uh, confess in the Orthodox liturgy. So what is probably the big thing that people stumble over if they've never been to an Orthodox service and reciting or is trying to sing the Nicene Creed with us? Pontius Pilate? No. <laughs> the Filioque bit. The Filioque <laughs> bit. What's the Filioque bit? And the sun. And the sun. So you can basically say there's there's three basic articles. You can maybe say, yeah, three basic articles. I was about to say four, but no. The Father. Actually, I like that it has the Father. So you have an article on the Father in the Creed. You have an article on Jesus Christ. And, of course, Jesus Christ uh, has all the things that are basic uh, 
to him historically what we believe about him, that he suffered and died for us, that he rose from the dead, uh, that his kingdom shall have no end. And then the third uh, part of the creed, we have the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. And if you have been in any Western tradition or confession, uh, they will then, uh, if they do use the Nicene Creed in worship, they will say, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So I don't want to spend a, any time really talking about the Filioque besides one basic comment. The Filioque was added unilaterally by the West uh, outside of an ecumenical council. Uh, this was a text that was defined at an ecumenical council, accepted at an ecumenical council, uh, and promulgated basically by an ecumenical council. So the big debate, whether or not we can get into all of the side eddies about debates about the Filioque, at the very front of it, from the Orthodox Church's perspective, it was added uh, basically without the rest of the church saying anything about it. Now, it's complicated, so that's all I really want to say about the Filioque. If you really want to spend a lot of time, there's a great quote by Yaroslav Pelikan, who's a great uh, his, historian of Christian dogma, who basically said, um, what was it? Something about Charlemagne? Charlemagne, no, no, no. Uh, basically, there's been more wasted ink in Christendom about uh, the differences between the East and the West about some of these things uh, than like any other topic uh, that they just kind of go ad nauseum repetition about certain things. I can't remember the exact quote. I have to go look it up, but it's, it's a, a nice quote. Um, that is not to denigrate the importance of or the theology that might go behind because there is a lot of examples of the use of the filioque that I think are very unhelpful and get really confusing about the Trinity really quick. Um, but on, I yes. remember I remember last night I was reading through uh, the Synod of Blackernay from 1285, the Tomos, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't remember the, the name. Uh, oh, John Beckus, I think that was the name of one. Yes, John. Yeah, yeah, so he tried to reunite with Rome and he advocated like the Filioque theology and stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, the council, that reprimanded him said he was blaspheming by teaching the Filioque, which is which I thought was really interesting because I don't know. I mean, some people think the Filioque is a very very serious divide. Other people think there's actually not really a big difference at all. I think, but that that was an Orthodox council that basically said it was blasphemous to confess the Filioque, right. or at least to teach it as an Orthodox cleric, at least. Right. So I think when we say something like filioque, it's like a lot of other things. Uh, like, for example, Augustine is uh, usually the whipping boy for a lot of people that he's really bad or something. Um, but what happens is we fill in the blank for a whole lot of things for whatever we think that particular problem is. Uh, so in the context of Lacrone and John Beckos and the reunion and the dissolution of the Byzantine Empire, we can put all that to the side for it. That's something that you and I could have a coffee over <laughs> to discuss all of the particularities of the historical context of what's going on. Yes, David. Yeah, I, I, I thought I asked a question, though. I, I would love to talk about the Filioque for about two hours, but that's okay. <laughs> Let me, but I really want to, this is quite serious because I've done this a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Because I, because, uh, 
They want to argue about well, the Philadelphia. Well, actually, it happens a lot. People seem to want to talk to me about God. I don't know why, but anyhow, these poor people do, and uh, and and, and they'll, I'll often ask them if they're a Christian, and they'll say yes. And a couple of times, I've really gotten into it. It's not not argumentative. Really talk to somebody and say, okay, you say you're a Christian. Do you believe all the words? of the Nicene Creed. Now, the two times I've done this, the response I've gotten is the what, and then <laughs> i got to explain what it is. But then when I explain what it is, what I usually do in a shorthand, and this is what I want to know whether or not how far off base I am, because I assume I'm far. But anyhow, is that, is that I say, you know, the Nicene Creed is fundamental Christianity. I mean, this is it. I mean, this, this is kind of like if you really believe all this, you really are Christian. And if you if you kind of like, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't like this Holy Spirit stuff, or I don't like this Virgin. <laughs> I said that you're really. They said that you're really not in the ancient sense. Now, is that appropriate to, in talking to people? To I think it's provocative. Well, I know it's provocative, but I'm not trying to find it provocative. I'm trying so, to help people. And I want to know if that's a helpful way to approach it and say, you know, this, this is the faith. This is the ancient faith. I, I totally agree with you that it is the faith of the church. It is what Christianity is. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's always that angle, and this is always the trick or the challenge of trying to unpack for people why they would need the creed because a lot of evangelicals would just say they need the bible uh or you get all of these kind of you know presuppositions and things that you have to explode and or explore and expand to show why uh if you just say it's just me and the bible well that's exactly what uh, you know well arius would actually have not have said that because none of the early church really would have just said it's just me and the bible uh, they would always say it's me and this is what the, the teachers of the church have taught because <laughs> they would always have made an appeal to uh, antiquity and tradition. Um, but this is exactly, I think, the crux of the difference between ancient Christianity and a lot of modern Christianity is ancient Christianity would assume that you are being grafted into a body that has uh, defined its boundaries and limits and what it is to believe. And uh, a lot of modern Christianity is usually really thin layers. And a lot of that has to do with a whole history of uh, debates, argumentations, etc. Um, where we get so far away from, I mean, if you look at the Nicene Creed, like you said, like there's nothing about the Nicene Creed that I would think any basically evangelical worth their salt of saying they're evangelical would really deny or baptism for the mission of sins one well, well see i didn't grow up evangelical so i don't always the way they interpret things on, would be I guess it depends on the evangelical but a lot of them don't see a huge issue with getting baptized again right and mostly because they don't think baptism is regenerative or that it saves yeah. you or anything right so this, so and that again, because baptism is also a physical, uh, a sacrament of the church that of belonging that a lot of modern Christianity is still kind of um, 
abstract intellectual, um, not intellectual as in like everybody's like has a doctorate in Christianity, <laughs> but uh, that it's basically about checking off kind of these boxes. If you believe these things, then you get your, you know, your boxes checked and you go to heaven, which that's just not ancient Christianity. Dan, I've never suggested that, by the way. I've never suggested to anybody that you have to believe all this stuff to get to heaven. I don't, I'm not doing that at all. What I'm trying to do with the creed with people who's trying to say, you know, you, you say you're a Christian. You know, Have you looked at this? This is the ancient faith. The, 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 the early fathers of the church, way back when, mm-hmm. you know, this fourth, fifth century, had arguments about who Jesus was and what his nature was and the role of Mary and everything else. And they sat down and they said this. Are you familiar with this? It's, it's a... I think it's it's a great uh, challenge for... Any, I mean, it was a challenge for me once I actually had to, to, to grapple and deal with those things. Yeah. Because otherwise, you realize that you're just kind of floating. Or I assumed all those things and took it for granted <laughs> that this is what Christianity is. Well, 